Now we've come to Revelation chapter 4, so I direct your attention to the Scriptures as we read the chapter in its entirety. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. This chapter provides us with a portal, an open door into heaven. We are invited into the narrative drama of the eternal habitation. It's worth marking this because we usually think of the description of heaven coming from the end of the book of Revelation. But here at the beginning of the substantive part of the apocalypse, beyond the seven letters to the churches, We are given a glimpse into the regions of eternal dwellings. All of the imagery and symbolism of this revelation here is to allow us to imagine the heavenly arena, to be drawn upward into it as spectators as well as possessors, spectators and possessors both present and future, both in the now and in the not yet of our own existence. The life of heaven unfolds via the personal characters, the beauty, and the resplendence of their surroundings, that is, their heavenly environment. And their speech is a declaration or confession, both a confession of identification in verse 8 and a confession of dependence in verse 11. They identify God himself as he is in verse 8, and they acknowledge their dependence upon him in verse 11. We must keep in mind, as we marvel at this celestial glory, and it is marvelous to imagine, we must keep in mind that its all-glorious triune God is the center. This narrative is a narrative of timelessness and infinite place and parallels the narrative of time and finite space. There is an interrelationship between the one and the other. As time and space continue to exist in this arena, so no time and no space continue to exist in that arena. There will come a day when the temporal and finite will cease so that the eternal and infinite may endure forever. Revelation 4 tells us what is true now in heaven's eternal and infinite world 
even as we experience reality in our temporal and finite world now on earth. We are <clears throat> reading about the contemporaneity, the contemporaneous events of one, <clears throat> one environment with our own. Now the scene or setting of the apocalyptic drama in this chapter is this heaven, which we've been describing briefly in verse 1. More especially, <clears throat> the setting is the throne room of heaven, as it is specified in verse 2. The Apostle John is a privileged spectator to this drama, and he takes his place alongside an Old Testament counterpart who was also given a vision of God's throne room in heaven. An Old Testament counterpart, also given a vision of God's throne room in heaven. Does anyone know who that was? Nice try. Not completely. Not completely. Nope. Yes, he saw those wheels a-turning way up in the middle of the air. Yes. Ezekiel chapter 1 has another very detailed description of the appearance of God in his throne in glory. We, the readers of Revelation 4 and Ezekiel 1, are granted the privilege of seeing the arena of heaven as wonderfully described by both vehicles of revelation. The glory and beauty of heaven is shown to us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they are complementary visions. Let's begin then by identifying some of the characters in our drama in Revelation 4. First of all, who is speaking in verse 1? That's a question for you to answer. No. But it is someone who was speaking in the previous chapter. Uh, he says, he heard a voice speaking with me saying, come up. So this is not, this is not John speaking. There's someone speaking to John. Who's speaking to John? Jesus, yes. This is the Son of God. <clears throat> How do you know? Well, notice he is the same person described in the same language who has spoken in chapter 1, verse 10. So if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 10, you'll notice the language. I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. That's one ten. 4.1 says, I heard the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, saying, this is the same person, and of course that was a glorified, risen Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, and he is the one who has also been speaking to the seven churches by way of letter in chapters 2 and 3. Well, who is on the throne in verse 2? If, if Jesus, God the Son, is speaking to John the Apostle, who is on the throne sitting in the center of the, of the picture. God the, Father. God the Father. One other than the one speaking. In other words, there's a distinction of person here. The one speaking is not the same as the one sitting. And who's bringing the Apostle John to this heavenly court? According to that second verse of chapter 4. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is carrying the Apostle into the heavenly arena. So, the triune Godhead is present in this drama. The triune Godhead in their eternal habitation, personally distinct, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, while essentially or consubstantially united. They are one in their godness. They are one in their, in their deity. They are distinct in their personality. All right, so we're not reading too much into the passage in order to see that reflected here. The doctrine of the Trinity is manifest 
in this in this section of heaven's glory. Now, next, verse 4, who are the 24 elders? Ha, somebody's been reading the commentaries. Yes, well, that's very good. I do like that suggestion. That these... That's Hendrickson's idea. Anyway, you read, I know you're reading Hendrickson. Well, I have been reading. Maybe I did <laughs> I don't want to diminish your creativity, Randy, but... Yeah, it's not. It's, it's, it's disputed, but... Here's the reason I like it. Randy mentioned it's the 12 patriarchs. It's the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's the 12 apostles. There's some indication in chapter 21 that the 12 apostle identification is accurate. But let's think about the pattern there. This would be the 12 tribes of Israel. They're the elders of the 12 tribes. The old Israel. And the 12 apostles. The new Israel. All the people of God. Old and New Testament alike are summarily represented by these figures who are two by twelve. Two times twelve would perhaps be more accurate. And what is their position in heaven? In this drama, in this portrait that we have here, they are gathered round the throne of God. Their focus and devotion is centered on the one who sits upon the throne. Now that once again makes perfect sense. If the 24 are representative of the people of God of all time, of the Old and New Testament era, if they are representative of them, then why, why are they around the throne? Because they're focusing upon the one who is seated upon the throne. They have a theocentric focus. They are God-centered in their emphasis and in their direction. Of course, that's been the focus of their life while they were on the earth. Focus of those who were saved in the Old Testament, God-centered. The focus of those saved in the New Testament, God-centered. That's the message of Revelation 4. Heaven's redeemed people of God have a God-centered position, focus, and role. Notice what they say in verse 11. Worthy is the Lord our God. There's a theocentric confession in chapter 4. When we come to chapter 5, they're going to say, Worthy is the Lamb. In chapter 5, verse 12, that's a Christocentric confession of faith. So a theocentric confession here in chapter 4, a Christocentric confession in chapter 5, the one is complementary of the other, the one doesn't exclude the other, the one enriches the other, they both are Simpatico, I should say, they, they reinforce one another. But notice here the emphasis is upon God the Father sitting upon the throne and his being praised as worthy of, of, of honor and praise. We therefore move in our drama from God the Creator in chapter 4 to Christ the Redeemer in chapter 5 with the people of God singing heavenly plays heavenly praise to each all-worthy person of the all-worthy Godhead. It's not diminishing the worthiness of the ones receiving the praise and glory. It is incrementally enriching it, but featuring in chapter 4, the Creator, and chapter 5, the Redeemer. Now to the description of the one who sits upon the throne... His appearance in verse 3 is likened to the brilliant radiance of precious gems. There are two stones which display his effulgence. The third stone enhances and highlights his divine and regal position. First is what the New American Standard translates a jasper stone. A stone which Revelation 21.11 tells us was as clear as crystal. Now this brilliance in light has suggested to some that this stone is like a diamond. Crystal clear 
and shining with brilliant reflective light. <clears throat> so the jasper stone, which is a kind of quartz, which can sometimes be clouded, <clears throat> is uh, not as good a translation, perhaps, as a diamond, but you get the idea that this is a, this is a substance which reflects brightness quite clearly. God's glory is the shining <clears throat> brilliance of his holiness in unapproachable light. Now, the second stone in the New American Standard is called a sardius. The sardius stone is sometimes interpreted to be the carnelian stone. Both of them are red or red-orange, and that is associated with the flashes of fire and lightning, which emanate from the throne in verse 5. The sardius was a blood-red gem, and it was named for Sardis, yes, the city, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor in the previous chapters, because it was found there. At least it was found in its most abundant uh, <coughs> expression in Sardis of Asia Minor. The red <coughs> or orange-red color may be indicative of God's fierce wrath and judgment as possible because of the flashing of fire, as we mentioned in verse 5. <clears throat> but it may be reflective of his ardent affection, his passion, his fiery passion for his redeemed people. The, <clears throat> the heart burning with love for those whom he has saved. So it's, <clears throat> there's possible to imagine the symbolism of the Sardius as being <clears throat> both God's wrath, wrath and justice and also his flaming love and passion. Finally, <clears throat> the emerald rainbow. This rainbow surrounds the throne, an arch of green light acting as a mirror, reflecting the white light of the jasper and the red-yellow light of the sardius. Now, this is a picture to contemplate. Think in your mind about what has just been described. A brilliant diamond white with flashing reddish orange all against the backdrop of an evergreen emerald rainbow. Picture that. Let that expand your imagination and your mind in terms of its beauty, its great loveliness and brilliance. Notice that this rainbow is not a prismatic rainbow. It is not a seven-color rainbow. The arch around the throne <clears throat> has a single monocolored mono bow, bow reminding us of what a rainbow reminds us regardless of the color. Namely, God is tempering his wrath with his grace and assures us that his wrath has been satisfied in the rainbow of his grace and mercy. Case in point, Noah and the rainbow that came out after the ark settled. Now, arranged around the divine throne in circular, but not semi-circular fashion, <clears throat> and I'm saying that because they're going all the way around the throne. They're not like an auditorium or like a movie uh, theater, semi-circular seating arrangement. There are 24 lesser thrones upon which are seated the 24 elders. They behold God's glory from every direction, which is the reason they go all around the throne, because they represent the elect of God from the north and from the south, from the east and from the, east, from the west, from the four corners of redemptive history, Old and New Testament, 
alike. <clears throat> They're coming from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They're coming from every direction of the points of the compass. They're coming from all around God's holy habitation. Notice their clothing. They are clothed in white garments, reminding us of the spotless white robe that Jesus promises the Laodiceans if they repent and come to him in sincerity. Chapter 3, verse 18. Now, I continue to refer to these white garments as the white righteousness robes of Christ. The clothing which graciously comes from the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness to believers justified by faith and by faith alone. Now, in addition to the white dress, these elders wear crowns, crowns of gold upon their heads, another reminder of an image from the letter to the Laodiceans, once again, chapter 3, verse 18, Gold refined by fire, refined to a shine as with purity and brilliance by reason of the divine gift. White garments and gold crowns, images of glorious cleanliness and heavenly radiance. Nothing unclean, nothing impure in that heavenly environment. It is all like gold, well-refined, in the most burning fire, the hottest fire. It is like spotless white, brilliant robes and garments covering any uncleanliness and impurity. Now, the elders facing the throne of God not only bask in the crystal-clear diamond jasper light, the red-orange sardius carnelian reflection <clears throat> off of the arched emerald green rainbow, but they behold, as it were, a replay of what Israel beheld at Mount Sinai. Thunder and lightning and the sound of a trumpet, Exodus 20, verse 18. Notice verse 1 again, <clears throat> the sound of the trumpet heard once more here in heaven, with raucous accompaniment of thunderclaps and lightning flashes. The eschatological throne room of our great and glorious God previews itself. It previews itself in God's descent upon Mount Sinai after the redemption of his people. The sounds of God's might and power, his crashing, flashing omnipotence, the voice of the trumpet, heralding his presence, all of this, <clears throat> the breaking in of heaven's glory revealed at Mount Sinai of old and ever present on the heavenly and eschatological Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, even now. In other words, this vision here is to remind us of what happened at Mount Sinai because Mount Sinai was a preview of this vision. It was an eruption or appearance of this vision and its glory to the Israel of old after they were redeemed and brought in to the, into the proximity of dwelling in tents at the feet of God's holy mountain. So here in Revelation 4, the people of God's representative dwelling on God's holy Zion mountain and seeing anew this demonstration of his omnipotent power and wonder and that after they've been redeemed by grace. Notice the progress of this drama. Progress comes from the throne itself. To those who are around the throne, when we've not talked about the four living creatures, and then the Holy Spirit symbolized in the, in the, the seven lamps, and then the elders of the, representing the people of God. From God, through the Spirit, to the redeemed of the Lord. There's your progression. There's the way that God's glory works its way into the lives of the redeemed. So that this display at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12, that display was a preview vision of what God's glory and majesty, as well as his redeeming power and grace, have, uh, have accomplished and, and, and 
is, is dramatically in place because it's already in place in glory. Now, John sees that contemporaneity of it, the fact that it is a, a, a continually reminding the elders who represent the redeemed of the Lord of the glory, power, and redemptive majesty of God. All right, now, the seven lamps of fire. Verse 5. The seven lamps of fire, which are also around the divine throne, are equated with the seven spirits of God. A symbol, that is, the seven spirits of God, a symbol of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, whose effectual work is the communication of the glory and grace of God to the saints represented by the 24 elders. I've already indicated that this this <coughs> portrait is a portrait which makes theological sense as well as magnificent uh, <coughs> decorative sense or emblematic sense or symbolic sense. God's people in glory are filled to the full with the Holy Spirit even as they have been born again of that same Holy Spirit on earth and have begun to walk in the Spirit. Here that walk is finished, completed. They are filled to the full with the Holy Ghost in the place where He fills all and all. So it's not only the redemptive aspect of the Spirit which is being reflected in these lamps, it's also the perfecting, sanctifying influence of the Spirit All of the elders are perfectly holy. They are reflecting the perfect holiness of the Holy Spirit as well as the perfect holiness of the Godhead and Toto. Any questions to this point? We're about to talk about the Crystal Sea in verse 6. Any questions to this point? Yeah, I, I like the red and green, yes. And the white snow. Yes. It's lovely imagery. Yes, Kay. Yeah, you know, when I think of a rainbow, I think of this. And you said it goes around this way. No, not, not the rainbow. It's the, it's the circle of the elders which is going around, and it's the seven lamps which are going around the throne. So you, you picture the throne... And behind the throne is the rainbow that arches, just like an ordinary rainbow, only it's a green rainbow. So that's behind the uh, colors that are representing God himself on the throne, the white diamond or jasper and the reddish sardius or cornelian. You've got red, white, and green. But there is a rainbow, there's a rainbow-like device behind the throne. It goes around in the sense that it's going around and over him, but it's not going around as if it's a full 360-degree circle. All right, now we've reached the Sea of Crystal, the the hymn that is in the hymn book. We graze now upon the Sea of Crystal, verse 6, which is spread out before the throne of God. Okay, <clears throat> This is the platform in front of the throne, upon which the throne is positioned. <clears throat> but this is not a roiling or tumultuous sea of storm and destruction and tsunami force. It is a placid sea of crystal, reflecting the glory of God upon his throne, an image of peace, balancing the thunder lightning and apocalyptic trumpet that we've already discussed. God of might and power is at the same time the God of peace and crystal-like stillness. So you have a beautiful sea of crystal out in front of this throne of God. In Ezekiel, that that sea which is in front of the throne of God is before a throne which Ezekiel describes as lapis lazuli, deep and rich blue in color, the throne itself. That's not repeated here, but it's interesting to pick up that fact, that feature from what Ezekiel saw. 
because he's seeing the same heavenly habitation. All right, now, at the end of verse 6, we meet the most perplexing and even bizarre figures in the heavenly narrative drama. These four living creatures with multiple eyes in the front and in the back side of their shapes. But before we get into this, which will take us a good bit of time to detail, I think we'll take our break. We'll let you stretch your legs. We'll come, by, come back to focus on the details of these, what I say, are perplexing and even bizarre creatures. All right, now, <clears throat> the bizarre four living creatures. Now, I said they're also perplexing, and that's because they seem to be unique. Though they are compared with other similar beings in other parts of Scripture by many commentators. They are somewhat bizarre as we struggle to picture them in our imagination, unlike anything we know. Try to picture, if you will, four living creatures with multiple eyes in the front and back of their shape. It's a little bit weird. So let's begin with the perplexity. At least it perplexes me. These beings are creatures. They are not representations of God himself or the persons of the Godhead. They are apparently servants of God of some variety. So they are dependent beings, not independent beings, as God himself and the trinity of persons are. They are dependent, they are not independent. They are creatures, they are therefore not representing the creator. For there, there is here, with these living creatures, they're called creatures, a creator-creature distinction. Now, all the commentators agree with this, but that's where the agreement ends. Now, it's clear to me that they are alive. That may be obvious. They are alive and active. Even now, as they have been since their creation long ago, they remain active, living beings. Now, notice their position, their position in this heavenly tapestry. They are around the throne. No, not the 24 thrones of the 24 elders. They're not around those thrones. They are around the central or theocentric throne of diamond-like brilliance and blood-red intensity arched by the emerald green rainbow. They are around the representation of God's position, God's throne position. The effulgence flowing forth from God's position is through the fullness of the Holy Spirit to the redeemed of the Lord through all time. But the position of these living ones is near to and around the throne of God. They are not on the other side of the work of the Holy Spirit. They are not on the other side of the redemptive grace of God. That's very important to remember. They are around the immediate throne of God himself. The position, then, of the living beings is near to the throne of God. They are not positioned with the representatives of the redeemed people of God, an indication that they needed no redemption. Whatever and whoever they are, they did not need the work of the Holy Spirit. They did not need the grace of God. They did not need the confession, <clears throat> worthy is the Lamb. They did not need that. All right, now I've indicated that the description of these creatures has been compared <clears throat> with other passages of Scripture, especially Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, where we have an Old Testament revelation of the tapestry of heaven and God upon his throne in his everlasting glory there. Many, and I would in fact, in fact say most commentators, suggest that the living creatures of Romans Revelation 4 
are the same as the living creatures of Ezekiel 1. Creatures which Ezekiel 10, verses 20 to 22, identifies as cherubim. The guardians of the throne of God as their position over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and temple would suggest. All right, so the claim is made that the creatures in Ezekiel 1 are like the creatures in Revelation 4 and that the creatures in Ezekiel 1 are identified in Ezekiel 10 as the cherubim, who are the guardians of the throne of God according to the Ark of the Covenant. All right, so let's let's make some comparisons. Comparing the description of the living creatures in Ezekiel 1 with the description in Revelation 4, let's think about the parallels. There are four of them in both places. Ezekiel 1, 5, Revelation 4, 6. There are four living creatures in both chapters. They are described as full of eyes in both chapters. Ezekiel 1.18, Revelation 4.6. So, there are four of them, and they are full of eyes. And that's where the similarity ends. It ceases with those two characteristics. In Ezekiel 1, they are described as having a human form. Revelation 4 does not assign a human form to them. In fact, it really doesn't describe the shape of them except in terms of animal qualities. In fact, Revelation 4 gives them one face or form each. Verse 7, one has the form of a lion, another has the form of a calf, another has the form of a man, another has the form of an eagle. Four creatures with four distinct forms. In Ezekiel 1... Each one of the four creatures had the face of a man as well as the face of a lion, as well as the face of a bull, as well as the face of an eagle, Ezekiel 1.10. In Ezekiel 1, they had the face of all four on one form, on one creature. It's not the same creature. It's a difference. The particular animals are the same, man, lion, cow, or bull, eagle, But Ezekiel's creatures have all four of these creaturely forms on each creature, while John's creatures do not. Now notice another difference. Ezekiel's creatures do not speak. John's creatures speak forth a choral-like hymnic confession, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, verse 8 of Revelation 4. Ezekiel's creatures have four wings. Four wings. Ezekiel 1.6. How many wings do John's creatures have? They have six. Verse 8. Now, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty that the creatures in Revelation 4 sing is an accolade that we find also in the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And who sings that holy, holy, holy song of praise in Isaiah 6, 3? They are identified as the six-winged seraphim, correct. The six-winged seraphim, Isaiah 6, 2. So, if I'm going to cast my vote for who these creatures are, I'm siding with the seraphim. Not with the cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and 10. And yet, the similarity of form mentioned here, man, lion, ox or calf and eagle, may be comprehensive. That is, the image is cumulative and complete. These beings are near the throne of God. They are winged creatures like a man in understanding like a lion in nobility, like an ox or a calf in humility, like an eagle in swiftness. In fact, the living creatures of Revelation 4 are representative of all the angelic hosts of heaven. 
the representative of all the angelic hosts, seraphim, cherubim, archangel, and common angel. Yes, there's no, there's, there's no uh, reason to think that they're not moving about here as well, but there, it's not mentioned. Their multiple eyes are indicative of their messenger task. They're the servant of God with eyes upon his elect people, both before and behind in the history of redemption. They understand God's revealed plan as human redeemed sinners understand God's revealed plan. They are noble in carrying out their tasks, lionizing their job description for the people of God. They are humble in their service, exalting only the Lord and their submission to the task he has assigned to them, both in front and behind the thrones of glory. They are swift to dispatch their assignments, flying to the aid and help of the redeeming of the Lord. These four creatures of our text are the symbolic representation of all the angelic heavenly host, in my opinion. This is a comprehensive symmetry, it's comprehensive symbol and imagery. They are like the seraphim, they are like the cherubim, but they are representative of all the angels who are gathered around the throne of God in glory, both before and behind his radiance and servants. So I think they are comprehensive. And notice that once again, their position is closest to the throne of God. The other thrones are, are, are away from the throne. Even the flames of fire are, the flames of the lamps are away from the throne of God. There's a distance between the two. But these creatures are around the circumference of his very gory throne, uh, <clears throat> uh, nearby. To him. All right. Any question about the, these uh, strange four living creatures? Yes. Go ahead, Art. Well, uh, you say the word strange. Now, uh, we don't see creatures like this down here on the earth. But God can make whatever creatures he he wants to. In fact. Somebody could call the creatures here on Earth strange if they never saw them before. So I don't see why they're strange. Could you clarify that, please? Well, the fact that they have eyes all around. But that's, <coughs> but that's just comparing to what's down here. Yeah, yes, each, each of the descriptions are analogous. I realize that. But they're analogous to something that, that is hard for us to imagine because we have no... We have no awareness. We don't see creatures here that have eyes all around their form, both front and back. So that that's the strangeness that I see in the, in the portrait. I mean, if you don't think it's strange, that's fine. Uh, but I, I see a strangeness. Well, let me ask this question. This, this is not answered by the passage. Would you think these 24 elders found these creatures strange? Hmm. If 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 the if the twenty four elders were thinking as I do, yes, they would. I don't know that it would be disparaging. I think it would be perhaps you know strange in the sort of awesome sense, not not in the sense of uh, of yuck, but uh, you know just very very unusual, something that arrests your attention. Oh, okay. Anybody? Oh, Cheryl. The only things in common we got are like Twilight Zone, so that's where we get screwed up. It's not Twilight Zone stuff, no. I know, that's where we get screwed up. Cheryl? Well, my, my question to you is you said the ox is a suggestion of humility. Yes. But I was just wondering, an ox to me is a suggestion of strength. It, it, it could be that as well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that, but... Uh, <clears throat> The, the lion has the strong nobility, I think, in the image. Therefore, the ox is suggesting something else. It's, it, it's, it's, it's slumbering and it's, uh, it's, it's docile for, in the most, for the most part. Even, even a young calf. Translated in calf here and ox in Ezekiel 1. Yes. 
All right. Now, obviously, I'm relying on my own thinking about these, and so there's speculation involved in what I'm saying, yet I'm trying to justify it on the basis of the distinction between the Ezekiel vision and the Revelation 4 vision. These, these are different beings, in my opinion. How, however, we visualize them uh, strangely or, or usually. Now, the hymns of confession, psalms and hymns of confession in verse 8 and verse 11. Notice that the angelic host intones the one confession night and day without ceasing, verse 8. These, these creatures, whom I'm saying are the angelic host, the host of all the heavenly angels, they symbolize all the heavenly angels, <clears throat> they, they make the first confession, verse 8. And in that confession, there are two elements of God's nature that they recite in particular. Okay? The two elements of God's nature are, first of all, his holiness, holy, holy, holy. And second of all, his what? A seity. A seity. He's not a seity. A seity means his very essential being. Art? Eternality. His eternality, yes. All right, so... <clears throat> Next step is to think about what holy means. Why are they con confessing or seeing that God is thrice holy? What's holy mean? What's its root sense? Sure. Separate. Separate from what? Got to be more precise. It means separate from something. Separate from what? Sin. Sin. Separated from sin. It's devoted to God. Because God himself is separated from sin. He is perfectly sinless. Sin has no part in him. So why would the angelic host confess God's separation from sin? Why would they be intoning this? After all, they didn't get any redemption. Christ didn't die for the angels. Not these angels anyway. Didn't die for any angels as a matter of fact. Doesn't make any difference whether these or other angels. So why would they be singing this? That, that, that is true, okay? So they're praising him for what he is in and of himself, okay? <clears throat> but what if there's something else in the background here? Are they praising him for being separated from sin because they recall the clash which occurred when sin invaded heaven and the unholy allowance between the dragon Satan and his angels in their war against the archangel Michael and his angels. These angels who joined the fight to maintain God's holiness against the attack of the unholy fiend and thus they do not cease to extol God's holy victory over sin by separating himself from the kingdom of evil and its rebellion by casting Satan and his angels down to hell. Now that story is in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 12 of this book of Revelation. Is it possible that these angels who are confessing God's holiness are extolling the fact that he separated sin from heaven itself and cast it out when the rebellion and uprising of Satan, that girl dragon and fiend, <coughs> cast out his, himself and his angels down into the pit of destruction? In other words... There is a memory in the, in the minds of these creatures. There's a memory of God gaining the victory and their part in contributing to that victory which God gained over the rebellious, host, <coughs> rebellious demonic, devilish host of Satan and his imps. But holiness is also a mark of God's own character, as we noted, as well as a mark of the heavenly arena he inhabits. There is no sin in that arena as there is no sin in him. And he has demonstrated this holiness in separating his sinless self and arena from the unholy arena and utterly sinful self of Satan and his kingdom. So why three holies? <clears throat> why the so-called trisagion, as it's called in Greek, the threefold holy? Why do you think? 
The Trinity, that's one suggestion. Anything else? The, the sequence of the degrees, the normative, the comparative, and the superlative. That is, he is not only holy, he is holier, and he is holiest. So holy, holy, holy in the sense of he has the highest perfection of holiness. <clears throat> he is holier than, by, than they are by nature. That is, he is holier than these angels are by nature because he is the holiness of all as uncreated whom they, the created creatures, adore and confess. Once again, they recognize their place. They recognize who they are, and they acknowledge that God is other than they themselves. All right, now we also noted that there's another quality of God in this angelic confession, and that's his eternality, which means that he has no beginning and no end. And why does he have no beginning and no end? Because God is not a creature. Are the angels eternal? Yes. No, the angels are not eternal. They are created beings. <clears throat> they have a beginning even if they have no end. But notice the parallel emphasis upon the eternality of God in verse 8, who was and is and is to come. And verse 9, he lives forever and ever. For he is unbounded by time. His eternity places him outside of time, a reality which binds all creatures, even angels. He is timeless in his being while being Lord over all time. Even the time of angels in heaven, he is the Lord of their time. And so they give glory and honor to the thrice holy eternal God, their creator and their preserver. The last, yes, Randy. Uh, so, the definition internal requires infinite back too. So, it's duration so through. What's the word for us? We're we're not eternal. No, we're not e- we're not eternal. <clears throat> we're creatures. By definition, a creature has a beginning. An eternal so being. Yeah, an, etern- an eternal life, which is a gift to us by grace, an eternal life is going forward. Even as an eternal life is going forward for the angels who did not rebel against God in that conflict with Satan. So it's not precisely correct to say that that's, that's eternal, but nonetheless it means everlasting. That once it comes, it lasts forever. Yes. So that's always been, always. His, his, his eternality has always been. Right. Okay, it's a part of his not being bound by time. Eternity is duration through time. Infinity is duration through space. He has no boundaries in either category. Okay. All right, now, the confession of the 24 elders. We had the confession of the four creatures. Now the confession of the 24 elders. Their confession features God's creative power. Does that mean they don't confess his holiness and eternality? No, it doesn't mean that. Yet their confession is complementary, not contradictory, because notice the parallel. Glory and honor is being given to him even, at his, even as it is given by the angels. Verse 9 compared with verse 10. There's a parallelism there. Both of them are saying the same thing about his worthiness to receive all glory and honor. So these two confessions are confessions which build on one another as our narrative drama moves from the affirmation of the angels to the affirmation of the redeemed community. The redeemed community is represented in the 24 elders. Keep that in mind. But why would the angelic host not confess God's creative handiwork? Well, it's not that they would not acknowledge it. It's that their confession arises, <coughs> rather that this confession arises from the sinful representative creatures, 
And they are not in that category. So they're not talking about the creation in their confession, verse 8, as the redeemed creatures or the representative of the redeemed creatures, the 24 elders, are speaking of creation in verse 11. The four, the 24 elders, Old Testament Israel, New Testament Israel, 24 elders are all too conscious of God's creative power. They know that they were made by him. The angels are not having to confess that. It's, it's taken for granted. The creature, but the creation that the elders confess is a creation which was marred by their own sin and rebellion. And that was not the case with respect to the angelic host who did not sin or did not rebel. Now, I am suggesting here that the creation which is being confessed, or they fall down and cast their golden crowns, is a thanksgiving for being recreated or created anew by the grace of God the Creator, Recreator. They are on the other side of the Holy Spirit lamps. That is, the 24 elders are on the other side of the Holy Spirit full lamps. That is, they have been recipients of the Spirit making them anew, creating them anew, regenerating them anew. It is their confession of the creation which they inhabit. They inhabit a new creation, a recreation in and through Christ Jesus ultimately, the creation of the heavenly environment in which they sit, for which they bless and praise God their Lord. They've come into a creation which is new, fully new, brand new. It's as if it's spontaneous in its own right. The glory of the heavenly arena they praise through God's grace. The honor and shamelessness of that heavenly environment they praise through the free grace of their Lord God. The power of a new creation which brought them into that heavenly world they praise through the undeserved favor of God their Lord. Creation and fall. Recreation and grace or restoration from the fall. This is the confession of the redeemed of the Lord in every era of the history of redemption. Revelation 4 leaves us with an open window, an open portal into heaven. We ponder and treasure it for our instruction because we learn from it. And we are encouraged by it as our hope of glory is nourished by it. Doesn't this draw your heart upwards? The beauty of it, the majesty of it, the power of it, the poignancy of it, even the strangeness of it attracts you. And we are drawn to meditate on it as we imagine the glory yet to be revealed. And so we too love and worship and adore the triune Lord God of this heavenly paradise whom the angels adore and love and worship and whom the 24 elders adore and love and worship and who the Holy Spirit magnifies and glorifies along with all the others. These are riches of revelation for us to treasure and ponder. Not just the glorious portrait of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. This is an open portal at the beginning of the revelation of this apocalypse. To anticipate with the saints that great treasure which is in Christ Jesus represented in the 24 elders and their confession. To join with the angelic hosts in confessing holy, holy, holy Lord God omnipotent and eternal. In eternal. To confess by the recreating, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit through the precious intercession of the Son of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. Here is confessions that we can take upon our lips and join with the heavenly host and join with the saved of every age and join with the triune God in receiving that praise, honor, glory, and adoration now and forevermore. May this chapter encourage your faith and your heart to rejoice and to confess and to praise that God who dwells in that glorious heavenly place. Let us pray. We ask, O Lord, that you will write upon our minds, our imaginations, our hearts, and our faith these portraits of your wonder, the glory of your brilliance, the loveliness of your heaven, and the drama of those 
who are before your throne even now. We confess with them that you alone are Lord. You are holy and eternal. You are a redeemer and recreator. You are a regenerator by your spirit. You are a savior by your son. You are our heavenly father by yourself. Lord, receive our thanksgiving and our praise and thanks for Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord because we are, are able to do so only in and through his name and for his glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Are there any questions you had before I went to prayer? Yes, Randy? Yeah, to support your strange explanation of strange, I think oftentimes in the Old Testament, even Mary, after they described what they saw with the angel, they used the word strange, I think. It's been used, not I think even Mary uses the word strange. Strange things I've seen today or something like that. I'd have to look at the text. Uh, but I think it's used in some sense in the Bible yeah, several times it, to explain something that came to them from the other world. Something unusual. Yeah. Thanks for defending my strangeness.